If you're new here this morning, my name is Tony. We're in the midst of a series in the book of Acts, and we're actually going to turn to two places in the Bible today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 25, and we're going to be in Romans chapter 13. We're going to start in Romans 13 and then go to Acts 25. Those books are next to each other in the New Testament. It's towards the latter part of your Bibles. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers are walking up the aisles right now. I'd be glad to provide you one. So um, <clears throat> as much of an image as I have in my head about what I've experienced over the last few days watching our students, I'm going to give you images that are not going to have the same effect upon you. Quite frankly, it's going to have a myriad of response, but I'm going to show you four images in a row. We're going to give, let's see, uh, I have Nate back there on the screen. Give each image about five to seven seconds, and then we'll roll through, and I'm going to say nothing, okay? All right, so first image. Now, depending on which face was up there, a different emotion hit you or different thoughts. And that's an understatement. When you consider just the last four leaders of this country, you can get such a different picture with each one. They come from different parts of the United States. They each have different personalities. They each even have, I mean, even though there's, you know, two parties represented and there's two and two, in that you even get two different perspectives within each party of how to lead and what values are going to be at the center of your leadership within the party. And depending on where you stand politically will depend a lot upon how you responded to the picture. Now, initially there was some laughter, and then you realize, oh, I wasn't supposed to do anything right there. No, no, no. And then it was silent the rest of the way through. But let's be honest, in our society, the response to those leaders, and let's remove the first two for a moment, and let's just go to the, the last two. The responses to each of those leaders, President Obama and President Trump, can be as extreme as the emotional uh, spectrum can be. It can be an angry response, it can be a sad response. It could be a longing response. It could be like a shaking your head response. It's all over the map, isn't it? So the emotions are varied here in this room after seeing that. But let me also ask this question. What words have you spoken about each one of those presidents? Think about it for a moment. What words have you ever spoken about President Clinton? What words have you spoken about President George W. Bush? And I'm doing it that way because there were two of them, so I'm just saying it that way. What words have you spoken about President Obama? And what words have you said or spoken about President Trump. Now, here is this radical idea that for some of you, it will be a shock. For others of you that maybe are more familiar with Scripture, it's not, but it still makes your head shake. Each one of those presidents 
were chosen by God. That is a crazy idea. That might make you think that if I, by me saying that, if it is true, that God must be some kind of schizophrenic. Because when you look at the four leaders, just the last four, if you go throughout all 45 presidents, you're going to find quite a myriad of leaders. And we're just talking the leadership of the United States. But just the last four presidents, you're thinking, chosen by God? Really? Romans 13. Let's look at it real quick because I, I want us to have context before we go into the book of Acts, which again, we're doing a series, uh, and we're wrapping up, we're getting towards the end of the book of Acts, but it's the history of the church and how the movement of Christianity went throughout the world, changing lives in the name of Jesus. But this moment before leaders that we're going to look at in Acts will be best understood if we see what is written in Romans 13. And my Bible closed there, and I had, okay, here we go. Starting in verse 1, and it is Paul writing this, so it's important to know that. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against God, what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no uh, terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will, not, and you will be commended. For the one in authority, this is key, for the one in, in authority is God's servant, for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is why you also pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, again, reemphasizing, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Mind you, this is being written when Nero is emperor. And if you know anything about Nero, he loved to torture kill, and martyr Christians. And yet, Paul says these words. So we have to, if you believe at all, that Scripture is the Word of God. It, in other words, God, by His Holy Spirit, inspired writers to write what was upon His heart. And if you believe that, then we must take this statement that is said here that all authorities are established by God and the authority figure is a servant of God. Again, hard to connect the dots when you have certain leaders before you, right? Very difficult. 
And on top of that, we need to, to understand that in the prior chapter in Romans, in Romans 12, it talks about the fact that God puts certain people in place for noble purposes and other people in place for ignoble purposes. In other words, some leaders are established by God to bring about judgment because of the depravity of man. So he assigns leaders, okay? You want wickedness and you want the rule of wickedness to lead, then I'm going to put a wicked leader before you and you'll suffer the consequences of a wicked standard. But then there are other times where God assigns that noble leader who establishes a just leadership. And then you experience the wisdom of God under justice and right living and right leadership. But don't lose the fact that every authority is established by God and therefore is a servant of God. So, he says in verse 2, Rebelling then against that authority is like rebelling against God. Now, some people have used this as saying, well, then was it justified for our national fathers to have rebelled against the king of England? Some people have questioned, like, was that justified? And I suppose there's a place, and certainly I support what happened back then, but there is a place where an unrighteous leader is deserving of having a response from the people. And they chose to go before the king multiple times, not being heard, and it gave them no choice to, again, pursue that making of a nation that we get to reside in now. But ultimately, we're not to rebel against authority because the authority figure there is a servant of God. And that authority is for our own good. And verse 5 in particular says this. We submit to that authority for two reasons. Two reasons. To avoid punishment and for our own peace of mind. You see, if you live by the law and you practice being a law-abiding citizen, you have no fear of authority figures. If you've been breaking the law, then the badge on a police officer is something to be afraid of. If you're abiding by the law, that badge is seen as protection and something friendly. But we submit so that we can avoid punishment and we can also have peace of mind. Which then goes back to my questions that I started with. When you, when you experience the emotions of those four different presidents that we had there, and I asked you what words you have spoken about them, and then what did you think when I said, and each one of them was chosen by God. And then we read Romans 13 that talks about him being a servant of God, him being a leader by which we are to submit to his authority. So then I get to this final question I ask, have you ever truly prayed for those leaders, not just praying that they would make a decision you like, but praying for the heart of the leader. Praying that they would have a movement of the Holy Spirit in their life. You see, the difference between you and I, if, we're, if you're a child of God, and I don't wanna, I'm going to assume for a moment that most everyone here knows Jesus, but it may not be so. But if you know Jesus, and you know that, that God is about 
sharing his love and, and revealing his love to people who are not walking in relationship with them, then it should be unique to us that when we consider a president that maybe you don't like, that your immediate response isn't about spreading the ill word about that president, but it's about praying for the soul of that president to be changed. You see, that might be one of the most evident things that would separate a believer from an unbeliever. It used to be, when I was growing up, that one of the first markers of, you could tell somebody might be religious or might be a Christian based on, well, they don't use the same language I use. The cursing might be separate. Or they don't drink as heavy or as often as others. Or, they, or that maybe they're not going and being promiscuous in their dating relationships or in their marital commitments. Those might have been the things that immediately identified or separated somebody who is pursuing faith in Christ versus somebody who is not. But it may be more striking than ever that the first evidence of a believer might be how we speak about our leaders. How we think about our leaders. What is actually upon our heart when we consider our leaders. When you start thinking in terms of praying for the soul of a leader, it changes things. Now, President Clinton is a member of the Southern Baptist Church. And I can tell you that some of the views that President Clinton had and, and the views of the Southern Baptist Church don't align. So I'll just tell you that. They don't align. But President Clinton claimed to be a follower of Christ and using the terms born again. So where he might be wrong, did the Southern Baptist Church choose to say, are we going to pray that he will see the light. If he truly is a follower of Christ, we're going to appeal to the Holy Spirit in Bill's life. Excuse me, President Clinton's life. I, I, human, I humanize myself even when I'm praying. It's like, you know what I mean? But we're praying for him, and it's like we're praying. It's like, God, if indeed he is your child, help him to see dot, dot, dot. When you go through that list of presidents, all four actually claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. All four have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. So if that is so, how should we pray? Should we pray like Jesus? I don't know if they are a child of God, but if they are, then the Holy Spirit's in them. Convict them of where maybe they are standing in opposition to Scripture. Not only in policies, but also in actions, in words, and spirit. And I'm choosing my words very intentionally. So in Acts chapter 25, let's turn over there. Again, Paul wrote Romans. He's the one, by the leadership of the Holy Spirit, that wrote, all leaders are Selected, chosen by God. All leaders are servants of God. So therefore, we're to submit to him. And now, Paul is actually 
going to be speaking to the two highest ranking leaders in the region that he was preaching in. One's a Roman leader and the other one's a Jewish leader. And in the chapter prior to what we're reading today, Paul, was, when he was before the Roman governor, Festus, appealed to Caesar. So, in other words, he chose not to make his case fully within the regional director of the Roman Empire, but rather to go directly and make his case to Caesar, which was a risky venture because that pretty much meant that Caesar could go do this and you live, or Caesar can do this and you die. It's automatic. There is no real trial by jury situation there. So he's appealed to Caesar. But here's the problem. Festus is struggling with, well, I got this man that's now appealed to Caesar and he's going to go to Caesar, but I don't know what to say about Paul. I have to say something to Caesar. By the way, I'm sending you this Jew and I can't make out why he's coming to talk to you. That's not the appropriate answer. There has to be an educated, very articulate reason for why he's allowing Paul to get audience with Caesar. So that's the hang-up. So now Festus is in a situation where he's trying to gather evidence. So starting in chapter 25, verse 23. The next day... Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and circumstance because what has happened is Festus invited the Jewish king, Agrippa, to come in and hear the testimony of Paul and explain to Festus what's going on. So he's now going to take a, a royal leader who's not, what should I say, as clouded in his judgment as the religious leaders of Israel who had already had audience with Festus and then his predecessor, Felix. So now he's bringing in this king, Agrippa, who is the last, by the way, of the Herodian kings. So he was, uh, he was Herod Agrippa. So anyway, so Agrippa and his wife Bernice came in with great, I'm sorry, it's not his wife, it's his sister. But they came in with great pomp and, ent- and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought to not live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Okay, so a little little bit of background here. So Festus has just now been assigned to this part of the Roman Empire. Felix is now gone. It's now Festus. Festus is dealing with an environment that's already divided and divisive. And and so he's trying to bring order and trying to do it by by the rules of, of the law set by Rome. Portius Festus, he only led this area of the world for three years, from A.D. 60 to 62. 
And then King Agrippa, though, however, was in his reign for almost 50 years, from AD 50 to approximately AD 100, and we know for sure to 93. There's argument on the final seven years. So you have the last of the Herod leaders, and then you have this very short-lived Roman governor named Festus. They are trying to figure out how to handle this societal public issue. It's not a religious issue in their mind in the sense of what their aim is. It is a religious issue between the Sanhedrin and Paul. But with them, it's just seen as we want to get everything right in society. We want it to be peaceful. So that's their motive. They're being good leaders. Now, something you need to know about Agrippa a little bit. Agrippa is... Kind of, they say that there's possible Jewish blood in him, but he's really more of an Edomian. In other words, he's from the line of, of uh, you know, when Jacob and Esau had the little spat. Well, Esau went to the south and to the land of Edom. And so Edomites were literally of the lineage of Esau. So there's relationship between when I say blood relationship between Edomites and Jews, but they're from two different lines, if you will. So if you can understand. So here you have these Edomites who are not considered Jews, but, but in the beginning, Herod the Great, who was an Edomite, became a follower of Jewish faith. So in blood, they're not Jewish, but in worship, they are Jewish. So Agrippa was very well taught in the Jewish thinking and thought, and very well taught in the Jewish scriptures. So for Festus to invite him in, using his knowledge, it was a very logical uh, request to have Agrippa come, because Agrippa would know much about the Jewish way of life and Jewish teaching and Jewish scriptures. So these two men are now in the same room. Paul comes before them. And how does Paul handle the situation where he has two men who are not religious in the sense of, of overt faith. They're just more leaders of power and, uh, and have a motive simply to be in control and to keep peace in society. How do you handle that? And what would be your motive if you're Paul? Again, Festus is representing Nero, not a righteous leader whatsoever. Uh, Agrippa, we know that was, was religiously fascinated, but we don't know, again, where his faith ultimately was. So let's look at how Paul handled this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 26. It says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews. And especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life, <clears throat> in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest of sects in our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I'm on trial today. And this is tying to the idea of a resurrection. 
Because in the ancestries, they were believing in the resurrection, but a good portion of the religious leadership in that day were Sadducees, and they did not believe in that resurrection. So again, he's tying back to the primary thing being about a resurrection. Verse 7. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they are put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue uh, to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority uh, and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven. It was brighter than the sun and blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you, for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to Gentiles. I have preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets Moses said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and that the first to, the, to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. In other words, in secret. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. 
the king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. And after they left the room, they began to say to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Then Agrippa looks at Festus and says, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So I ask you, was Paul's response to leaders who had him on trial because of his faith, was his response to them like what our response would be to a president we don't like? And I would say the typical response. Was the response of Paul about exposing the heir and the kings, or was Paul's response to the king and a governor that of appealing to their heart? What was the motive of Paul in this? What was his attitude in this when standing before two very prominent leaders? Well, first of all, I would point out, if you didn't notice, look how much he esteemed the leader, King Agrippa. In verses 2 and 3, he said, King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to be standing before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen patiently. Was that a respectful response to a king who is non-religious? Yes, it was. And it esteemed him because he knew he had studied the religious ideas of the Jewish faith. He also acknowledged him as being worthy of his title. You can tell in the language of Paul that he saw King Agrippa as the servant of God. You could tell by his language and response to King Agrippa that he is the assigned authority of God. Again, Paul's life is on the line here. He has appealed to Caesar. He will likely die as, as a result of it. And he's looking at these leaders, and what was he trying to do? He was trying to win their heart. So he begins with esteeming them and, and, assigning, and assigning them what they're due. King Agrippa was worthy of being acknowledged as being stu a studier, a student of the Jewish faith. Paul acknowledged that and esteemed him for it. But then when you look at verses 4 to 23, what was Paul's defense? Was his defense counterpointing all the things that were being said about him? Or was his defense the gospel? It was the gospel. And, what, and how did he present the gospel? His testimony. You see, what's interesting about this example is that it's very difficult to deal with a testimony as compared to just point counterpointing with scripture. He uses scripture, don't get me wrong, but then he lets the testimony of his life be informed by that scripture and therefore help understand the scripture to the listener. They're gaining understanding here. So he shares his testimony. I have killed Christians. I pursued Christians to the furthest places, even places I'm not supposed to go to kill Christians. So I was anti this faith that spoke about a resurrected Lord. So he contrasts the fact that, don't you think 
that it, there's something must have really happened, that I must be telling the truth, that I ran into Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that to cause such a great change in me, I killed Christians. I abhorred Christians. And now I'm one of them and standing before you. How is that so? Unless it's true, what I tell you now. I ran into Jesus. And Jesus changed my life. And here's how. It disarms the argument. Now, they, they tried to ask a lot of questions, but it's hard to stand against the fact it's like, yep, he was killing Christians. Yes, he was definitely against this faith that he's now for. And he's definitely different. So it's hard to argue whether it's true or not. Because you're sitting a man who's gone from here to here. So he esteems the leader. He makes his defense, his own personal story, weaving the gospel into it. And then in verse 24, I love how he handles Festus. Festus says, you're insane for saying these things. <laughs> Look at what he says. So Festus says, you're insane. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your learning has driven you to this insanity. And Paul says, I'm not insane. You're most excellent, Festus. I mean, again, the respect is there. He didn't choose lo lower language for Festus. He said, your most excellent Festus. Your most excellent Festus. I'm not insane. But then he cleverly moves the arrows back towards Agrippa. Because when he says, yeah, you're, you're, he says, I, what I am saying is true and reasonable. Verse 26, the king is familiar with these things. So what is he doing there? He appeals back to Agrippa, says Agrippa gets it. It's a dangerous thing to say between two leaders sitting in a room. But he says, Agrippa understands these things. He's been a religious leader. He knows this is about the resurrection. He knows that the people of Israel have been hoping for a resurrection for generations. And now that it's happened, they don't know how to deal with it. So he knows that Agrippa knows this. So he says to Agrippa, you know these things, Agrippa. Now, if your heart is beginning to be provoked. Now, some of you are, have come to church, and there's probably been moments where maybe your heart is starting to get soft. And your immediate response is, oh, don't let that happen. I might have to start living like some religious radical and I certainly don't want to have tears like Pastor Tony does all the time. And you start creating all these defense mechanisms that, that will keep you from letting God do a deep work in your life. One of those defense mechanisms is having a rebuttal that says, <laughs> you can't do that to me so quickly. Why would Agrippa say, could you possibly think that you could change my heart in a day? Why would he say that when that's never been mentioned by Paul unless his heart has now been pricked? His heart has been pricked. Something happened that his heart is now in it and he realizes, oh, wait a second. Hey, I'm starting to get soft in front of Festus here. Do you think you can change my life in a day? Keep in mind, Paul's testimony is, my life was changed in a day. 
So Paul then shrank back from the defense, again, guarding his heart moment of Agrippa. Paul then shrank back. Again, he says, you know, you think you can make me a Christian in a day? And Paul says, short time or long, doesn't matter. Let's just sit here. Let's talk it out. And we could do this for a couple years, which he did. So Paul took the long game. He says, short or long, short or long, I pray to God that not only you, Agrippa, but all who are listening to me today, today, Festus, <laughs> would become what I am, except for being in chains. So he did not mince his words. He admitted, I'm here to see that your life would be changed. I'm here to speak the gospel before you. This wasn't about getting out of jail. This was about seeing the leader and his heart changed. Verse 30 to 32, you see what has happened. Festus and Agrippa now choose the safest thing to say if he hadn't appealed to Caesar we could set him free. They were convinced he was innocent, which is another way of saying, we think he's right. But he's got to go to Caesar now. What if the church, instead of choosing to always respond with how society likes to respond emotionally to leadership, that we began to think of leaders the way Paul did. They are men and women just like you and I that need Jesus. They are men and women just like you and I that even if they think they need Jesus, they need Jesus more than what maybe they are letting Jesus move in them. So the takeaways I have are this. We need to begin to humanize our leaders by praying for their heart to be moved to Jesus. That we wouldn't just respond emotionally. And trust me, there are things and policies and attitudes and words that cause me to cringe when, when presidents say or do or decide certain things. It's been so since I was younger that when I began to understand it, those things happen. It didn't matter which party. But what if we began to pray earnestly for the heart of the leader and asking God to start placing around them people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who have a relationship with Jesus to begin to speak into their lives. Secondly, and this is a long one, and I want this to stay on the screen because I want you to write this down. This may be probably the most practical point you could walk away with today. Take a picture with your phone if you need to. Because this is a game changer for me. Our testimony of God's work in our lives is more powerfully on display when our attitude of disagreement is strikingly different from the rest of the world. Oh, come on. I got to have an agreement there. You realize that if we would handle our disagreements with a leader, with a different spirit, with a different word, with a different response, that it begins to already show and say something is different about what's going on in you, which then gives you the opportunity to have audience just like Paul. 
Paul was not seen as a threat to come before the leaders because he had already shown himself to be respectful in a court before the Sanhedrin, before other leaders, to stand there with respect and yet provoke the heart. It intrigued the hearts of leaders. In the same way, if we esteem other people and we give respect to other people's disagreement, but we handle this with the right spirit, with the right words, it will say something is different about you, which will provoke the question as to why you are the way you are when they know you disagree vehemently with that leader. Oh, if the church would just get, get, get that one right there. And it may be the single most way that we can begin to show there is a God and he's alive. If we can respond in disagreement in a much different spirit than the rest of the world. Here's the other thing at stake or that I, I take away. We've already seen multiple times God in the last chapter and the chapter before it. God says, I'm sending you to Rome. After Paul stands on defense before the Sanhedrin, God again comes to him and says, you've testified to me about me before Jerusalem. I am going to send you to Rome. So Paul already knows he's going to survive this court. So who's really in control? The takeaway is this. No earthly power can stop the work of God. Who's appointed the earthly powers? It started there. Who, start, who appointed the earthly powers? God. So who's really in control? God is. So no matter what may be going on that may seem so awful that our leaders might be doing or deciding, God's still in control. Paul was still going to get to Rome in spite of whatever Festus or Agrippa decided. They were still going to get to Rome. And guess what? In spite of whatever president of the United States we have and whatever party he comes from, the gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to be proclaimed even if it becomes illegal. Because no earthly power can stop the work of God. Having said that, our closing this morning is more of a declaration. I'm going to invite the team to come up. It's a declaration of who's in charge. It's God. But I, I trust that you're provoked and, and maybe your heart pricked that, that maybe some of the ways you've handled your disagreement with a leader needs to change so that the gospel will be seen, not your angry words. Maybe by a change of heart towards our leaders, somebody else's heart can be changed. I pray that this is Pricked your heart in that way. And when we close this service, I'm going to come back up and we're going to pray for our president. Amen. So God, I don't think in any president of the United States would we write a song saying how great is he. No, those, those words are left to you as a redeeming God and as a risen Savior. So we ascribe those words to you and you only. But now, Lord, we do pray for our president. And Lord, while I may not always agree with how he says things or what decisions he may make, that's not the point. He is our leader. 
You've appointed him. He is a servant of you. And as a result, I pray now that you will surround him with good counselors, counselors that are filled with your spirit, and that he will make decisions based on guidance from those counsel, counselors filled with your spirit. And I pray that also you will do a redeeming work in his life, that the spirit of his words and the spirit of his actions will become more like Jesus Christ. I pray to that end, Lord, not just so that we can see that you have the ability to change any heart, regardless of position, but Lord, so that our nation will continue to see the gospel proclaimed under the freedoms appointed us by the Constitution. We want that to continue, Lord. So, Lord, may this change happen in the heart of our leaders, not only president, but the House and the Senate. And may there be a different spirit in the way they interrelate, the way they communicate. Because, Lord, we need a change there. We need, we need a different way of compromise. And we need a different way of discussion and collaboration. So, Lord, show yourself to be powerful. May those who bring about that kind of collaboration and that kind of work be ones who declare the name of Jesus so it can be seen. The ones who have the best power, the best wisdom, the best uh, spirit in, the, in our government are those who know Jesus. I pray that that will be the testimony of the saints. God, help us in our interactions with others who might disagree with us politically or, or say things that are more inflammatory about different things that maybe we disagree with or, or we think what we think is true. I pray, Lord, that by the spirit we interact with them, that it will say, there is other in us. <laughs> because there's no way that we would act that on our own, but that there is a power over us that is changing us. So God, may that be so, so that again, your kingdom can be advanced. So Lord, I pray for your work to continue in this church and in this region and in the churches of this region. May your spirit move powerfully in changing lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You are welcome to come and pray with people up front if there's just something upon your heart. If you want to continue that prayer for leaders, we welcome that too. But go this week with a different spirit. Let's pray this week every day for our leaders. Can we do that? to the glory of God. You're dismissed.